93.5 FM. Kick Radio. Embracing Mother Earth is the name of our Hi. Radio. Hi. Coming to you since 1997 on KKUP Radio with over 250 guests and still going strong in their 12th year of weekly broadcasting, the international Taz and Paula show brings to you expansive, engaging, and groundbreaking intensity on radio and now on the Internet Airwaves today. Listen live every Thursday or visit Embracing Mother Earth's archives, exclusive articles, Ask questions and receive actual answers from guests anytime at TazAndPaulaShow.com. Taz and Paula's special guests are experts coming from all walks of life, energizing our lives with a passion that inspires and teaches us with each of their compelling personal life journeys, with roots from ancient wisdom and bridging it with modern science. We hope today's show touches the wisdom of your heart. And now... Taz and Paula. Woohoo! Well, happy Halloween is bobbing just around the corner. So, good afternoon to all of our listeners. Our guest today, William J. Hall, shares a true, terrifying poltergeist story. What may be the most notorious and most terrifying poltergeist haunting of recent decades? The Bridgeport poltergeist was seen and heard by thousands of people on one unforgettable day in uh, 1974. And one of the local young, uh, youngsters, William J. Hall, remembers viewing it on TV when he was 10 years old. William Hall grew up to become a magician and a well-known investigator of the paranormal and the unexplained, writing a syndicated column on those subjects for many years in Connecticut, Connecticut newspapers. And today, Paula, our journalist, William, relays the details for this terrifying poltergeist story. You are now listening to the International Taz and Paula Show. I'm Taz. And I'm Paula. Well, Taz, William has ushered in from his past never-before-reported interviews of the first responders and other witnesses and previously unrevealed documents and reports in his new book, The World's Most Haunted House, The True Story of the Bridgeport Poltergeist on Lindley Street. This book exposes those gnarly feelings of the Lindley Street haunting but to life from the inside out. And with an in-depth investigation encompassing policemen, firefighters, and others, exposing the ups and downs of things that go bumpity-bump in the night. <laughs> Paula, in real life, this is not one of my most favorite things to do. I know you love Halloween, right? <laughs> but yes. for me, Halloween was a scary thing for me always. I'm not really sure where that came from. I just didn't like to go out and walk the streets in the dark for trick-or-treating ever. William Hall, we are honored to share you and your book with our listeners. Welcome. Well, we're going to call you Bill, if that's okay. Um, okay. Oh, I, I have to, uh, hold on. That turned off. Hi, Bill. Welcome to our show. Hi. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Now, when did you start? It sounds like it might have been when you were a kid, but when did you start um, being interested in the paranormal? 
Oh, yes. It was uh, very young. You know, I grew up on In Search Of, and uh, that's incredible for for us older folks, not old folks, but older folks. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was inter- You know, I started doing magic, uh, well, very poorly, but, you know, at age seven. So I was uh, always fascinated uh, from, the, from there on in with uh, anything like this, whether it was, you know, UFOs or haunted houses or any of that kind of thing. And um, later on, of course, becoming uh, much more... Uh, skeptical about it, but I always had an open mind. You know, I always held uh, an open mind to it, and I did research it more, I think, than uh, most of us do, you know, as you guys do, because, you know, and and the listeners, because we're the people who are, you know, look deeper than just saying, I don't believe it. You know, uh, we tend to say, I don't know if it's true or not. Let me order that government document or let me try to research further and, and, uh, to dig a little bit deeper before, you know, believing or dismissing something. So, but I've been interested in for, for many years. And uh, then in the nineties did a newspaper column where I would uh, uh, do different um, articles every month on uh, different things, whether it's fortune telling the pyramids, uh, UFOs, haunted houses, things like that. When you were 10, Bill, and you were sitting before the TV, and you saw this happening. What was your immediate thought? Um, I thought it was really cool, <laughs> and I asked my dad, uh, you know, Dad, you know, is this is this real? And and he, of course he said no. <laughs> and you know, life went on. But that was, you know, that's my dad. Um, happy to say he's a little bit more open now. I think. Uh, I think the evidence is finally getting to him, but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but at that time he's like, oh no, no, it's you know it's just a, a hoax, and that was it. And you know, as most people on the outside would have responded, except for those who are a little bit closer to the details or who took more of an interest other than the regular uh, cursory in- interest that somebody watching the news would have uh, gotten out of it. But um, but yes, yeah, so I never really knew. Uh, much what to think of it, but I was always fascinated by it. When you on TV, did you actually see furniture being thrown around? No, they didn't. They didn't show anything like that. It was mostly, uh, as I as I can remember, and you know, I don't like to go by my ten year old memory, but I remember uh, people talking outside the house. Uh, is the only memory I have of it, and I can't tell you if that's a completely accurate memory but from all my research i can tell you that um you know there were some interviews inside and outside of the house but uh, nothing was caught on camera there actually were reporters in the house that had cameras but uh uh more or less were kind of happened too fast or they were more or less caught in the moment it was difficult to remain outside of the story when they ended up finding out that they were part of it you know in the middle of it Wow. How long did this period last? Oops, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Answer it. I was going to say, how long did this period last when this was going forward? Was it a half a day, a day, or, or, you know? um... Weeks? (laughs) Yeah. How long? Yeah. Well, the, uh, the... The overall, from the very start of any phenomena to the end, it would be from 1968 to 1975. But if we look at the ultimate height of the activity, 
occurred uh, over the weekend in November 1974. Uh, Friday night uh, to about Tuesday morning was really the uh, the real heavy periods, and that was during the period where it uh, leaked out to the public and soon the media, and then you know the world from there uh, was because the police were there on uh, on uh, Sunday. And that's uh, Sunday and Monday were the two big days that uh, uh, gather the crowds and uh, the dogs and paddy wagons and police protection and traffic stopping and all the rest of it as the story hit the AP wire and traveled, you know, around the world. I bet I bet the family, uh, I felt sorry for the family because I'm sure they got criticism from the outside Oh, it was brutal, absolutely uh, brutal um, at work for uh, Jerry, the father, and he was a maintenance man at uh, Harvey Hubble factory in in Bridgeport uh, at the time. Uh, So there was ridicule uh, from people and, uh, you know, both, you know, just regular people. And there was a lot of uh, criticism, you know, at uh, work. Uh, People really made fun of him to no end at work. And uh, then people would vandalize their car and, uh, you know, pull clothes off the clothesline and, you know, throw rocks at the house and just all that kind of horrible things that people do. And other people were very supportive, you know, maintaining a vigil outside the house. Some people prayed. Uh, The neighbors were extremely supportive uh, because they heard the screams and and they knew it was a real situation. And some of them knew other people on the same street that were having problems, uh, kind of like an overflow, you know, from the house. Uh, So so they would bring over big goods and and, uh, things to help the family out like you would uh, do in the time of need, you know, whether it's a funeral or, you know, whatever the... Uh, the situation was, um, but because, uh, you know, a lot of those people, of course, knew knew them and they knew that uh, this was not fake. They knew that they were suffering because they knew the family before all of this. So, Well, some people blamed the, they had an adopted daughter and uh, some people blamed the adopted daughter for being the, uh, the creator yes. of all of this. Yeah, and that was the... Uh, <clears throat> That was the uh, the hoax uh, story, the story uh, to get rid of the crowds. And it was also the very first thing that you would suspect in a case like this. Uh, there are uh, cases where um, something like this will happen and an outsider will come and very quickly see through it, you know, because a child can fool their parents. But, you know, when an outsider comes in, it's usually pretty easy to notice that Things are only happening when the child's around and things like that. Uh, And uh, police will, you know, when they show up, they'll naturally uh, immediately suspect the child. And, you know, and that happened at this case, too, until, uh, you know, the officers really saw a phenomenon for themselves. You know, when a 300-pound refrigerator floats, uh, you know, you can't blame it on the child anymore or when there's phenomena happening in every room, you know, so... Uh, so there was no question it wasn't her, but to the public, it's a very easy sell. You know, our attention span is like that of a gnat. So, you know, if uh, if police officers are, and firefighters and priests, and they're all being interviewed in the newspaper saying about all the, these things that happen, um, you know, 
two days later, you can easily just say, oh, no, it was the girl, and, you know, everybody goes home, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, uh, you know, look at Roswell, same kind of thing, right? Uh, something out of this yeah. world. No, it's not. It's just, just a plastic weather balloon. You know, a major couldn't tell the difference. You know, we'll fly it in a special plane, even though it's just a pile of junk. We'll put it in this nice special plane and fly it off. You know, and the public says, okay, and, and everybody moves on. It's just, <laughs> It's just really kind of funny, but, you know, that's the way these things are. You don't really need to prove uh, a hoax story. Um, and, you know, in the police department's defense, uh, this thing just kept getting bigger and bigger. You know, the longer this thing was going on without uh, an explanation, uh, the more people were arriving and from farther away. So, you know, it was really a hazardous situation, and, and the police knew it. And uh, the superintendent wanted his city back. It was tying up uh, police resources. Uh, I mean, three guys even trying to burn the house down while the family was inside. So, oh my God. You know, the, yeah, I mean, this was, you know, I mean, what other, uh, what other way to get rid of evil spirit than to burn humans inside a house, you know? <laughs> but, you know, that's. So, you know, the way crowds are, it's just crazy. You know, the traffic and, you know, and that, that of course, increases the amount of accidents you're going to have. I mean, this thing was just a, a real crazy scene, and it wasn't making the superintendent look good. He wanted this city back. Um, he knew that there was no explanation, but what are you going to do? Tell people there's no explanation and just have the crowds get more out of control? Um because even with barricades and dogs and paddywhack and, and things like that, it's still, uh, you know, a nightmare for the police department. So uh, when they saw Marcy, uh, two guys had never been in the house before on Tuesday morning saw Marcy, um, you know, kick a TV. And that was the start of, oh, look, I saw you kick a TV. And, you know, you must have made the cat talk, which was another uh, you know, phenomena that was going on. The cat didn't talk, but it was there was audio phenomena and Marcy used to pretend to uh, make her little kitten talk. You know, she was very lonely and shy and everything. And she used to say that was her only friend and, you know, it didn't fool anybody, but because she did that, when they asked her, she said, Oh yeah, I make Sam talk. And, you know, and then of course everything got blamed on her, uh, you know, things she couldn't have possibly done. Uh, a lot of phenomena happened when she wasn't even in the house, but again, nobody's really looking at details and, uh, uh, you know, somebody asked me, well, didn't the inspector, you know, look into the details? And I was like, well, no, he didn't have to. He had the details. <laughs> you know, he wasn't trying to figure out whether it was a hoax or not. He knew it wasn't a hoax. You know, this this was necessary to get rid of the crowds, and that's been well uh, proven by the witnesses involved, including the captain. I mean, they all knew it, and, and they all said it behind the scenes that, uh, you know, we did the best we could with what was presented to us. We had to shut this thing down for the family's uh, sake, too. Although Jerry said he really wished they blamed him and not uh, poor Marcy, you know. Yeah. Well, I read I read somewhere that she was adopted out from a large family, and that, that yeah. made people uh, kind of question why did the other family want to adopt her out? I mean, that was one of the questions up in the air. <clears throat> Yeah, and unfortunately, we don't know too much about that family. And, you know, so some people hypothesized did, you know, was the poltergeist originally, you know, with that family? Were they scared of her, you know, or was it just too much to handle? It was said they tied her to a chair. 
we don't know the context of that. We know it's not good, but is it because there's too many children or was it abuse or, you know, we just really don't have a lot of uh, information on that, especially with the way adoptions were back then. So unfortunately, uh, that remains, a, you know, one of the things on the possibility list. But uh, we do know that the uh, activity, although very, very small, started uh, af- shortly after Marcy was adopted. So I don't think Marcy caused it, but we do know that obvious, uh, she was obviously, no matter what theory anybody has on what a poltergeist is, everybody agrees Marcy was at the center of it anyhow. Is she still alive, do you know? Um, That I'll leave for the book because I have gotten in trouble for uh, (laughs) for giving that. Some people say I gave it away. It's a spoiler, you know, alert. But we do do trace that uh, in in the book for you. Um, That's probably the only question I won't answer. (laughs) Okay. You you wouldn't believe the backlash over, you know, the spoiler alert, (laughs) but, you know. Was this strictly a poltergeist only, or were there other kinds of forms of entities involved? Well, you know, and that's and that's really the the question of how you know we define a poltergeist. So, for those who uh, believe it's just psychokinesis, uh, I would say that's not the case. But I I don't really believe that you know poltergeist is psychokinesis. I mean, I could be wrong. Again, these are all theories, and I say this all the time that, you know, I don't want to fight anybody on their theory because I'm happy that we're just discussing it. You know, I think us people who look into these things <laughs> need to stick together. But, <laughs> um, but well, no, I do because, you know, some people get into these big fights over, you know, no, it's a demon, no, it's an entity, no, it's psychokinesis, no, it, you know, you're wrong, you're stupid. You know, it's like, well, it's unknown. And I think I, I think we need to kind of, you know, even if you believe something completely different, I think this is the area of all that we should be happy that we're at least acknowledging it and, you know, looking for answers. Um, but it, with with this, it, it definitely, I mean, to me, when you look at the indicators of these, what I would call parasites or entities, um, they definitely feed on some sort of trouble, you know, that negative energy. And, and Marcy was the lonely, introverted, um, kept to herself, uh, was was now in a strange land and picked on at school and then finally got beat up at school and was home from school with her overbearing parents because they had a smaller child who died when he was six, the cerebral palsy, couldn't walk or talk. So they were they have this unhealthy parenting style with Marcy kind of treating her like they did Jerry Jr., their you know, their little boy who died. And they were afraid Marcy was gonna die. So yeah. it was all you know, it was all of that and now she's stuck at home for six weeks with the uh with the overbearing mother who's you know, you can't go across the street, you'll get killed kind of, you know, philosophy. And so this did all peak uh the activity. Uh but there were entities involved. So in in my mind, um, I wouldn't think that, you know, a psychokinesis would not only have entities, but the, usually if one thinks to look, that there are other houses that are affected. It's never just, you know, one house. 
well, I don't want to say never. I should never say never. Uh, and there's different kinds of hauntings, obviously. But uh, in a case like this, it looks like when the door opens, you know, whatever door you believe, whether it's dimensional, whether it's hell, whether it's a multi-universe, which I prefer the quantum physics kind of explanation. But, you know, jury's out on all of that. But whatever opens uh, tends to bring through just more than one species or type or whatever, and you find that there's other houses that are impacted also uh, by different entities in in different ways, and we found that on on Lindley Street also. So um, I do think uh, that's one of the common indicators. The other thing is we usually find a lake or a stream nearby. In this case, there was an underwater uh, spring uh, under the house. And then... um, uh, you know, Bridgeport was known for you know, the sandy soils and high water tables, which seems to be another commonality. Um, although, you know, this this would fall into basically anybody's theory. They're just kind of you know things that coincide. But so I don't think uh, it was Marcy's kind of unconscious frustration. I do think that there definitely is some sort of negative relationship, you know, between the entities and and uh, Marcy, that they feed off that, that they appear like they know how to push buttons. Um, I I hesitate to call them evil, though, because I don't think we know enough. You know, we're we're good at, uh, we're we're very guilty of giving human motivations to things that are not necessarily human. And I'm guilty of it, too. You know, if I mow the lawn and gnats attack me, I think I disrupted their home and they're attacking me to save their home, you know, because that's a human motivation. It doesn't occur to me that that's not why they're that's not why they're coming after me. They're coming after me because they're attracted, you know, mm-hmm. and not because it's minty fresh, but because of the chemicals I release. <laughs> but um, you know, so we apply a lot of human motivations to these things. But uh, I don't like to call them evil because I, I don't know. I mean, the people outside that tried to burn down the house were they evil? I I don't think so. They were stupid. They were scared. But I wouldn't yeah, call them scared. You know, yeah, I wouldn't call them evil because, no. you, know, you know, these things may not have asked to be here or they may have. They may, I'm not saying that they're positive and they're lovely and, you know, no, there are definitely some very negative things that they do. Uh, but I, I wouldn't label them evil, because, you know, maybe neutral, maybe negative. Uh, we're seeing the worst side of them, but we really don't know, I think, enough. And we do know that there's good things that come through also. Some would call them angels. Some would just call them, you know, good spirits or, you know, whatever we name them. Uh, to me, you know, I'd rather name them based on behavior rather than specifically labeling exactly this is Fred or, you know, because it's tough to get to that level of preciseness and knowing exactly what these things are. But, um, you know, these well, definitely they were are. Just, they were just lifting up things and moving things, so... To them, I mean, it it was just, you know, I mean, probably an easy trick. <laughs> Who knows, you know? Yeah, well, you know, and some of that, um, some of it, I think, and, you know, some of it was definitely them because it was very intentional. You know, so if an entity picks up and throws Marcy across the room, that's like, you would, we, we don't even know, but we would assume that that's a negative and an intentional act, you know. Right. Uh, did they act, scary. Did they actually... Did they actually pick her up and throw her across the room? Yes. Yeah. Oh, poor thing. Yeah. Now, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, no wonder the neighbors like, got scared. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, who wants that to 
come into their home too. I mean, it's kind of like, wow. Well, see, that's a good point. That's why I I try to think broader that I know. I try to always ask myself, okay, let's assume you know less and it's not what you think. What could it be? And, you know, the refrigerator floating, I don't think an entity did that. I think that's an energy reaction, you know, from the upset in the electromagnetic fields, you know. Um, I I don't think that that's something that somebody specifically did. I think that's, and, you know, Paul Eno, I'll, I'll steal this from him, but he gives a great example. Uh, if you have a pile of papers on a desk and you run by the desk, you've upset the papers, but it wasn't an intentional act. It was by the energy let off by you, you know, running close to the papers. You know, you blew them up and they, you know, they blow all over the place. And I think a lot of the things that we see uh, in these cases are not intentional and other things are intentional. But the fridge floating, I, I would I would venture to say that that was not like an intentional thing, that that was um, part of the energies of the two worlds or dimensions or, like I said, you know, use whatever word uh, makes you happy, uh, intersecting or, you know, or having been opened or, like I said, you know, use whatever term, uh, you know, you prefer. But to me, uh, I don't, you know, as one of the as one of the newspaper reporters uh, told me, uh, he said, I don't believe it's a demon that moved a, a, a toy boat four inches to the left. And, well, I mean, in that case, I would say the movement of that particular object was not an intentional act. I think that was caused by this uh, mix of energies, uh, whereas other things, like I said, an entity, you know, appearing or an entity, you know, picking up uh, the girl or flipping a chair while she's in it, that may be, you know, those are more kind of intentional things, things that are directed specifically towards uh, people. Uh, another example was a Christmas tree. The ornaments, they came home uh, one day, the Christmas tree ornaments were underneath the tree in a neat little pile. So that's freaky, you know. <laughs> that would be, they, you know, more, you know, intentional, you know what I mean? Did they bring in a minister or a priest? Um, um, what happened was, uh, you know, the, the escalation of this was uh, the off-duty police officer from across the street who's a friend and a neighbor came first. He didn't know what to do, so he called for backup. More police came. Uh, they saw things, and they didn't know what to do, so they called the fire department. They came. Everything with the house is fine, so they didn't know what to do. So a uh, fireman calls up the department chaplain, and you know he says, hey, Father, I'm not drunk, but this is what's going on here. <laughs> and, uh, and they go to get him, and uh, that was Father Doyle, for those that are local that may know him. And um, he... Uh, he came and said there's, you know, evil presence here and he had trouble breathing and uh, he tried to make a cheer go back that uh, Marcy was flying back in several times uh, very, very quickly. In fact, while uh, the police officers were actually talking to her, this happened. So there was just, a, you know, a house full of witnesses. But um, so he was going to try to get uh, an exorcism done um, and, uh, you know, that never happened. Of course, then uh, later on, even that day, the crowd started forming and words started getting out. And once this thing got massive, uh, you know, that was over. Um, and then a neighbor 
knew Ed and Lorraine Warren uh, because she saw them speak, and she called them up, and they came with Father Charbonneau, who they had worked with. Um, and and he's an amazing man for a few reasons, and one of which, not just because he's intelligent and a nice guy and everything, which is he's which is wonderful enough, but nobody can understand how he got away with uh, doing paranormal investigation as a priest, <laughs> being so vocal about it. He would tell any newspaper who would listen exactly what happened in that house and why it's real. So, <laughs> and and we just couldn't understand how he got everybody. When anybody I interviewed would say, oh, yeah, Father Charbonneau. Yeah, we never could figure out how he, <laughs> he can get away with that. Well, he must have been so shocked, though, that this, I mean, to view this kind of activity. I mean, no one has seen this kind of stuff, you know. It's not in our normal day. Right. Oh, had, had he investigated other houses that were similar? Uh, Father Charbonneau, uh, I don't know about poltergeist cases, but other paranormal uh, phenomena, yes. Uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren had worked with him, uh, you know, on some cases. Um, But, yeah, nobody really could figure out how he was, like I say, he would be in all the newspapers at the time uh, saying what happened. Whereas Father Doyle, he towed the party line saying we can't assume anything. But behind the scenes he did continue to help the family and, uh, you know, console them and things like that, which was, uh, you know, so he knew it was real. And uh, and uh, it's funny because all the witnesses would mention his name and Father Doyle said this, Father Doyle said that. Meanwhile, if you just read the newspapers, it would give you the impression that Father Doyle was over once and never saw him again. But he was very uh, instrumental in, uh, you know, bringing the family some uh, peace during that hectic time. Wow, you know, during the seventies, there weren't too many paranormal investigators as as many as there are now. But did any paranormal investigators come in and check it all out and try to help them? Uh, there were, uh, besides uh, the Warrens, um, who also brought Paulino, who ended up investigating the paranormal for some forty years now. But at that time, this was his first major run-in with. Um, uh, you know, with these entities. Um, and he was tw- a 21-year-old seminary student at the time. But there were a few other people who uh, showed up and they were and they were told, you know, we're all set. Uh, you know, the family wasn't going to let everybody in, you know. They did end up letting the Warrens in because uh, their friends knew who they were. They didn't, the, the Goodens didn't know uh, who the Warrens were. Uh, but, you know, everybody else had been at the house so they figured, why not? Um, and because their friends knew them, then they said, all right, well, you know, let's let them in and see what they could. They can't do any worse than the police and the firemen and everybody else. Yeah, did but any they, psychic show up on this case? Um, I, I think I think there was uh, somebody who tried to get in, but they weren't let in. So there were a few people that, uh, you know, were there, showed up or offered help, but, uh, you know, they were told that we're all set. And they, because they had the Warrens there, Father Charbonneau and uh, Paulino. So, um, you know, they had they had four people in the house helping at that point. And, uh, um, you know, the uh, Jerry's brothers uh, a lot of times was outside the house and would turn people away. So, 
But I do know, uh, I forget the names, but there was a few people that contacted me that said, yeah, we were there, we tried to help, but we were told that they were, you know, they were all set, they had enough people, you know, in the house. Well, did they end up moving because of all of this? Um, they had, they wanted to sell, they tried to sell the house and were unable to, um, even though the phenomena had stopped, um, what happened when Marcy ended up getting, uh, settled back, uh, because she wasn't going to go back to the public school. The family, of course, wasn't going to send her back to the same environment where she was beat up. Um, so Father Doyle helped them get a scholarship to get her into, uh, St. Patrick's School. Um, and so once she got into school and was back into a routine and, uh, you know, the family was uh, much more at peace, uh, the, it dissipated. And so the phenomenon was gone, but they still wanted out because, uh, as Jerry said, you know, we can't live here. I can't work in this town. We don't want Marcy to have to grow up with the stigma. So they really wanted to get out of town, but they couldn't sell the house probably for uh, probably two main reasons. Probably didn't, it might have had something to do with the activity, but I think uh, the bigger reasons were it was a really tiny house. I mean, it was 738 square feet. This was a, a tiny little bungalow. Uh, it was actually only three rooms, and Jerry made a bedroom out of, a, out of the closet in the master bedroom for Marcy. So this was a really tiny house. And then the other thing is they wanted uh, $31,000 for it because of the loans and things that they had on the house. So with those two factors together, uh, it was uh, tough to sell the house. And then, of course, you add on to that, you know, the other stuff that happened there. You know, today that probably would help sell it, but uh, I'm not sure what it did then. But even without that, it, it would have been a tough house to sell, I think. And so because they couldn't sell it and because the phenomena had uh, stopped by then, uh, they decided to paint the house and get rid of these swan planters that were on the porch that uh, uh, they would move by themselves. So they were pretty infamous on their own. So they got rid of those, painted the house, trying to kind of hide where the house is so, you know, the gawkers wouldn't come by anymore. Uh, but instead it ended up in the paper, you know, new look on Lindley Street. So that idea. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, uh, some, one of the reviews said that uh, that I read on your book, uh, the lady said the only thing that didn't move in the house was the uh, picture of the Last Supper. And she thought that was oh. <clears throat> something in it. Yeah. There was, uh, I mean, there were other things that didn't move in the house, and I think, I think this comes to uh, a lot of our assumptions too. Um, you know that we see things through, of course, our beliefs and our own prejudices. And uh, I'll give you an example. In the case, uh, if you ask some of the witnesses, you know, what items move the most, uh, they probably would, and a few did, say uh, religious items. However, if you look at the data, if you actually look at the incident data that uh, the investigators put together, which you know, Boyce Beatty and his team from Duke University did an amazing job. Uh, it's very rare to have this many witnesses and this kind of documentation <clears throat> because they got there right away. But, um, it, 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 you know, at the incidents themselves, religious items were only impacted 10% of the time. 
uh, 90% of the time it was non-religious objects. So, but to the witnesses, um, they would remember and recall and remark about religious items. And I think the reason is it, it's a little more jarring to see, you know, a cross float down or or shatter or something like that happen versus seeing a kitchen table lift up and flip. You know, there's kind of a different uh, connotation to it. You know, it's a little more jarring, yeah. you know. Yeah, definitely. How did you how did you go about um, bringing the people together so that you could interview with them? How did you connect with these people? Uh, most of it was uh, by phone, and social media was uh, incredibly useful because everybody kind of um, I don't say everybody, but so many people just came forward and said, "Oh, you know, you need to talk to this person," or. I know where this person is. You know, I, I can contact them for you. Or did you did you talk to John yet? Because he was, you know, in the crowd. You know, and everybody, uh, it was kind of like six degrees of Lindley Street. You know, everybody had uh, a piece to it. And so that definitely helped uh, locate people, locate additional people that, you know, newspapers never mentioned. And, you know, there was just, of course, so many people uh, involved in this additional police officers and, and things like that. So um, that really opened up um, the investigation and made it just a lot easier for me because uh, I was able to concentrate more and more on interviewing because um, there was a lot of time, of course, spent just trying to get out and, and find and reach people. Uh, but then it kind of got legs of its own where people were coming to me and uh, helping me locate people, some of which I knew, some of which I didn't, and it really started to have legs and uh, connect. The other thing is, of course, uh, from the very beginning, uh, once I found uh, Boyce Beatty's name in the newspaper, and uh, I ended up getting in touch with him and asking, you know, I heard that there was this big investigation uh, do you, you know? Do you have access to it? And he says, "I, you know, I think so. It's in a box in my basement." So, <laughs> so, so he had thirty hours of interviews that he gave me and all the paperwork on it. Wow. So, yeah. So that was about half of, you know, the investigation. And then what I did is I reconnected with uh, any of those people who were still with us um, yeah. that I could lo- locate as along with doing another 10, 15 hours interviews on my own with, you know, additional witnesses, um, some of which had some uh, really new and expansive information and others that just had, you know, just a little bit of detail that uh, enabled me to go back and add a little more texture to the story by uh, putting in a, a detail or two that, you know, wasn't major but kind of made the scene come alive, you know. I can imagine receiving this big box of goodies going, holy smokes. <laughs> oh, oh, I'll tell you, it was it was very exciting. <laughs> like Christmas. And, it was really, oh, yeah, I mean. It was Christmas time. <laughs> yeah, he invited me, uh, he invited me over to his house, and uh, he gave me a slideshow, and, and uh, he gave me a report he did, which now uh, is in the book, but uh, he did a preliminary report, and he got the newspaper and sat down. He said, here's a report. Read through it. It's my synopsis, and then we'll talk. 
And so I read it. He read the newspaper, and then we got together, and I asked him a million questions. And then we tested the tapes because, you know, they haven't been played in 40 years, and he gave me it all to me. And, um, and, and it was just really great to be able to put this work together and have him look at me and said, I can't believe how much you got of this story. Because he says, you know more about this than I ever uncovered at the time. And I said, oh, my God, boy, you know, boys, I mean, you interviewed so many, so many people were interviewed and stuff. I couldn't have did it without him. It, w- it would have been, you know, well, for one thing, most of those people aren't with us. But um, it, it would have just been, it was a monster project as it is, but it would have been just uh, unbelievable without, uh, you know, the 30-hour head start. I mean, there was a reel-to-reel of eight hours of uh, police officer interviews that took place at the police station in a special conference room that oh. was set up. I mean, the police mandated that their people be interviewed. So, I mean, they knew it wasn't a hoax. They actually actively and enthusiastically participated in the investigation and mandated that the police officers uh, go in and be interviewed. Well, out of all the interviews, was there anything that was particularly, like, stunned you or shocked you more than um, most of the interviews? I mean, there was one thing that stood out more than any other thing? Yes. Um, yeah, a few things, and and they were, th- and, and you know, I was glad I contacted. <clears throat> I almost wasn't going to be as diligent in contacting people who were already interviewed back in 1974 or, or 1975, but I'm glad I did because some of them did not tell everything. Uh, there were things that they withheld because. Um, you know, ridicule or like in a police officer's case, his career, Uh, even though they were private interviews that, you know, they were told this wasn't going to get out to anybody, you know, you still feel a little funny about it. And one of them, yeah, I mean, one of them was uh, Paulino, who was 21 at the time, when he had Marcy in back of him and and there was these four entities in, in front of him. They described him like gauzy, like, figures and and one of them was trying to get around Paul and he put his hand out and he felt that the thing had substance that it wasn't like yeah that's one of them he described it as he said you know I'm not a biologist but um, (laughs) actually I'm going to play you his words how's that that would be so much that would be much cooler Yeah, it's very short, but I'm going to play you his words. i got a few snippets here. Here we go. I didn't know how people would take it. Uh, these things are supposed to be spirits. They didn't believe they were demons. But the demons have anatomy and bone structures. I mean, I, I, I'm not a biologist. I couldn't really identify them. It was like a bone-like. The things out of my me and, you know, the kid across the room. So that's Paul describing. He said it felt like this bony, bird-like kind of structure. And he hadn't talked about it for 35 years. Um, he was afraid what people would think. And he said he dare not tell Ed and Lorraine Warren because these things were supposed to be demons. And, and you know, he was 21 years old. He said he wasn't going to tell them what he felt. You know, they would have thought he was crazy. Yeah, another 21 years of exile. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, my so the, God. War, the, war, the Warrens came in to help. Did they 
suggest anything or um, have have the family do anything special to rid themselves? Uh, well, their, their, big rec- their big uh, recommendation was uh, if something happens in one room, uh, get up and leave the room, go in a different room. And uh, that and leave everything where it is um, because they wanted to, you know, record it. Uh, the Warrens were there, <clears throat> excuse me, with uh, Pauline and Father Charbonneau for on and off, but mostly on for a lot of hours during the two two days of intense activity. Uh, but once the hoax story was um, given to the public, they weren't allowed back. So um, everybody kind of got kicked off the case, if you will. So the phenomena continued um, um, but uh, there was no uh, the, the next people that came in to help were um, was uh, Boyce Beatty and and the two guys from Duke University Jerry Sultan and Keith Harari uh, Bill Roll who you may know you know probably the poltergeist guy at least at the time uh, he was in England at the time so. Um, Keith and Jerry came. So the three of them were the next people to uh, come in and help the family. Um, Father Charbonneau did provide um, more support later on, and Father Doyle uh, continued to supply, uh, not supply, uh, (laughs) continued to uh, help them and, uh, you know, be a source of comfort and and guidance uh, through it. But so it kind of had uh, multiple phases, if you will. Uh, that's what's interesting about this. Nobody really has the whole story. I mean, the Warrens have a piece of the story, but there was a lot that happened before and afterwards. And, th- and that was the same with basically everybody. So it was very satisfying to be able to gain new information from a witness and also be able to answer their questions that have lingered for 40 years of how their piece fit into the whole you know, like Officer Joe Tomic was interviewed and was forced to be interviewed at the police department, but he didn't know why and by whom. So I was able to answer that for him while he was able to share insights and details that uh, he didn't share back in 74 um, and ex- expand upon it. And actually, he helped edit the chapter of what happened when he was there in the house. So, I mean... To have that kind of involvement from such credible witnesses was uh, really great because uh, you know it's like a soap opera. People don't know you're writing a book, so you've got, you know you got to get you got to get a timeline together because they're jumping days and everything. So you have to make sure uh, you know everything is there and uh, you know. Um, but yeah, you know. So if you ever anybody ever interviews you about paranormal, paranormal phenomena, assume they're writing a book and give lots of details. But no. <laughs> how long did how long how long did this take you to uh, from the beginning probably, to the end? It, it took me probably about eight nine months. It would have taken longer, but you know I had a deadline. But what really helped was I kind of ran on two tracks with it with the initial interviews. Once I had a timeline done, I began writing it. But I kept interviewing while I was writing. So, um, you know, there was the writing piece, and then they continued. I mean, I was interviewing right 
up until, you know, I submitted the manuscript. And sometimes I'd find out one little extra detail. Oh, they threw garlic at the house. Oh, that's neat. All right, let me go back and, you know, add that into the, you know, the crowd area. If, if, if there was something specific or new or new detail that came in, I would go back and, uh, you know, rewrite or add on as, as needed. Uh, but I kept interviewing, you know, because people would would uh, be found or other people would say, hey, did you know this person uh, did this or, you know, that kind of thing. And so as you come across new people, you don't want to not interview them. You want to make, you know, you're always, of course, with this kind of thing, you're always afraid somebody's going to come forth with new information after you hand the thing in. But um, Well, even I, the I, whole town... Even the whole town has something fresh and new that they might not have heard. <laughs> this book right. is open. You know, it's beautiful. Um, let me ask you a question. There, In Chapter 10, you say an extraordinary game of checkers. What was that? I didn't get to uh, find out. Oh, um, well, a police officer is uh, there uh, inside the house. And, and this is after it was declared a hoax. I mean, which is another kind of uh, neat part to the case is, you know, they announced it a hoax, but the police department is still providing uh, protection to the family, uh, not just outside crowd control, but inside the house. So, you know, that was uh, that was interesting. But um, so there was a police officer inside the house at the time, and, and uh, Marcy wanted to play checkers. And uh, they played checkers, and she lost. And she uh, accused the officer. She said, "Oh, I think he cheated." And, and <laughs> she, you know, she went uh, to her room. Um, uh, three things um, fell over at once. Bureau fell, and and uh, and all of this happened uh, while she was in full view with the you know the checker box, uh, uh, you know, in her hands. And um, so that, you know, and of course that people would say was, you know, you know, that's psychokinetic or whatever, but I don't know. We know there definitely is a relationship between whatever was there and Marcy, and we know that Marcy was the center of it. But, um, yeah, that was an interesting uh, bit of phenomena that the, the police officer saw. And they actually, after that, the, the family actually ended up leaving the house um, that day because of the phenomenon that happened. They asked the police officer, what should we do and stuff. And he said, well, you may want to go stay with family now, too. So they all left. Yeah. Um, oh, God. And that was How really did they sleep after going through some of these stories and writing about them? Do they kind of tickle your brain when you're trying to rest? Um, no, not in a bad way. Um, definitely a, a fascination, you know, an ongoing fascination and questioning and wanting to know more. Yeah. And, and of course, that's how it did expand <laughs> into a book, you know, to know more. But it was it was quite fascinating. Um, uh, did you interview anybody that was scared of the whole thing? I mean, like a neighbor or somebody who was frightened and they were one of the people that threw the garlic? Or did you interview anyone like that? Um, no, nobody identified... Uh, I wasn't able to identify a particular person who didn't act like that, if that's what you mean. But what was amazing is uh, some of the uh, lectures that I, that I did, uh, and, you know, one of them in uh, 
Milford, which is close to Bridgeport, Connecticut, but I'm amazed at how many witnesses show up or children of witnesses. You know, one lady showed up and said, uh, yeah, I live two houses down. I heard the screams. And another lady said my dad was, you know, fireman there. And, um, you know, just everybody had a, a story or, you know, a relation in some way to it that, you know, a lot of people that grew up in uh, Bridgeport, they just, they really never knew what happened, but it impacted just so many people because it was so public. It just, uh, you know, these, these things normally don't get that public. Some of them get, you know, public to degree, but this was crazy with over 2000 people outside the house. So it oh, really, yeah. You know, yeah, it yeah. really en- ended up getting uh, a lot of people that were connected to it somehow. And of course, when you have, uh, you know, 16 or more police officers involved, uh, even the police officers who weren't directly there seeing things, I mean, they have their, they have friends and the officers have friends. And, you know, so when you add in all of these, you know, over 100 witnesses and everybody they know, you know, the thing just really, uh, it's it's got a lot of legs to it and there's just a lot of uh, stories and experiences with people uh, you know, I even interviewed a guy who dated uh, the superintendent's daughter. You know, so you had all sorts of connections that you interview. What was going on behind the scenes? What the children heard uh, at home? You know, when their dad got home from uh, dealing with uh, this case and racking their brain on trying to, you know, close the case and get the people to go home. And you know, so you had family uh, involvement and you know their perspective too. So. Hmm. How large Bill, is that is, town? It doesn't sound very big. How long? How large is it? Uh, Bridgeport. Uh-huh. It's a, oh, it's it's a pretty decent sized city. It's it's oh, not okay. um, oh. the house is tiny, but it it was like uh, two blocks from uh, uh, the hospital, so it was right in the middle of uh, the city. And um, yeah, I mean, I'd have to Google to find out exactly how much because I'm bad with that. But it's not you know a tiny little area, you know. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that was right downtown in a kind of a, a lower income part of Bridgeport. Um, but uh, yeah, well, the two thousand people outside is not a good. That's not a good judge because people, of course, were coming, started coming from all over. So it's hard to really. Yeah, tell. really. But, uh, <laughs> well, you know what the story is in the house at night when after people look at that, that's all they could talk about, probably. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah. God. Yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, Bill, let us give out your website. Uh, we're getting toward the end here. And the it's the name of your book, worldsmosthauntedhouse.com. Um, and that's your website. Uh, is there anything else that we haven't touched upon that you would like to share with us? Um well, I'd like to say at uh, worldsmosthauntedhouse.com, there are some uh, free things that you can get, so uh, check it out. Hopefully, you, you know, you'll like the site. And um, also, it has an event calendar of uh, other uh, great interviews, probably not as good as this one, of course, but, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> with such lovely interviewers, but there are others, and uh, and where I'm going to be for those that are uh, local or somewhat local. And... Um, I, you know, there's just so much 
to this case, but I I would say I'd like to sum it up that if you if you have an open mind or or you know even if you already believe in all of this, if there's somebody that you really if you want to take a book and say you know I want one book that's going to give me the proof that I need this I be, I'm not trying to be you know conceited when I say it, but I believe this case is the one that, that would do it. I mean, it's the one that did it for me. Unless, of course, you know, 100 witnesses is not worth it. Obviously, if you don't care what any witnesses say or police reports say or any anything like that, then, of course, you know, we all know uh, for some things nothing is going to convince you. But I think this is a, a case that is a, a great one to share with people who are open-minded but very skeptical uh, because... Uh, you know, I'm 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 that way too. You know, and you should be. Um, but yeah. uh, obviously, if you Have know you somebody, around, any movie, right? you know, you I'm want hoping. To make a movie out? You, you have an offer? Yeah. No, <laughs> no uh, I was thinking it was an excellent movie. Yeah, I would. <laughs> yeah. I would. I really would uh, would love that, and so would my creditors. But uh, uh, no, <laughs> but no, I, I really would, and it would be nice if they did it uh, in an accurate manner too. Would be. Uh, would be very pleasant. I think it's a it's a great enough uh, story with plenty of phenomena that you really don't have to um, you don't have to do an Amityville on it. In other words, you know, to bump it up. <laughs> this is really, you know, I, uh, one guy says if you want to sleep, make sure you don't read this story before you go to bed. <laughs> yeah, Doctor Andrew Nichols said that, and uh, <laughs> oh my god. Well, well although well, I, we I still. I was just gonna say when well, it came out, I was I was telling everybody I knew it wasn't scary, but then I got in trouble, so I stopped saying anything. I said, I don't know, you read it yourself. <laughs> well, we want everybody to know if who want if they want to go out, I mean, go on to Amazon dot com to buy the book. That the author's name, Bill's name, is William J. Hall, so it might be easier to find it because we've been calling you Bill for the hour, so people should look under William J. Hall. Yes, and the name of the book is, um, what is it? Uh, let's see, oh, my God. That's right. The World's Most Haunted House, The True Story of the Bridgeport Poltergeist on Lindley Street. And um, this is like, it's an honor having you with us today, Bill. Um, thank oh. you for sharing your time with us and wrapping up one of the scariest times for many um, into a book. And, um, you know, and it's true. I mean, it's, it's like we people really live this story. And um, like I say, Halloween is not one of my favorite times. <laughs> it's my favorite. It's my favorite time. So. <laughs> I know it's Paula's favorite. <laughs> well, that's why you two work good together. See, you got you got both sides covered. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, and Bill. Thank Have you so a much. Day. It okay. was a great interview. Bye bye. Bye. An African Jamal Davis is going to be that gentleman that's going to bring you all the goodies this time. Okay, and have a terrific week.